Hello, everybody. This is Westerdine from Fifty Five One Podcast. Throughout the winter, um, one thing that we've been doing is uh, just kind of taking a break and talking to people that I find interesting. Um, you know, we we talked to Pablo Maurer and Meg Linehan, both of the Athletic. Um, uh, in, in previous episodes, so you can go back and check those out. But this week, uh, I have uh, Matt Doyle, who's from um, MLSsoccer.com. And uh, it's kind of, we talk about lots of things, obviously, how he, how he kind of got to where he is um, writing about soccer. And then we talk about his, um, you know, failed screenwriting uh, uh, career. And uh, it's a great conversation. So um, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I want to give a, a little plug for a couple of things. Uh, obviously, I'm the owner of Blackheart of St. Paul, the uh, best damn queer soccer bar on the planet, I, I like to think. Um, and Boxing Day, we are opening up at 9 a.m. Uh, to do uh, to watch soccer. Um, so, you know, at 9 a.m., you've got Palace, West Ham, Chelsea, Southampton, Bournemouth, Arsenal. I believe David Zeller is uh, going to be your bartender that morning, so you can uh, um, come heckle him. We are going to have a free tall boy um, uh, for your first order if you want one. Uh, we've got $5 uh, Bloody Marys all day. And then after the Liverpool Leicester game at two, we're going to put on uh, um, Christmas movies like Gremlins and Die Hard and love actually. Um, so literally just like come in the morning and just never leave. Um, hydrate though. Um, we're also doing the same thing on uh, New Year's Day. We've got a great New Year's Eve party um, that will be going on. That's a 1979 uh, themed New Year's party. And then New Year's Day, we're going to be opening up uh, at um, 9 a.m. again. So I have to work that party and then clean the bar and then bartend that morning. So um, definitely come and uh, help me out. Um so that's going to be Spurs, Southampton at 9 a.m. You've got Leicester, Newcastle, Watford, Wolves. Um, uh, we will have the the free EPA uh, Tall Boy as well, and five dollar Bloody Marys. And then um, then that night it's going to be crappy movies. So we're going to have Zardoz, um, uh, Troll Two, and I'm blanking because I don't have the rest of them in front of me. But um, again, just like you've got nothing better to do, um, might as well um, do nothing with us. Uh, so that's my plug. Uh, thanks, everyone, uh, for the support. Thank you for listening. And uh, let's do music from Big Quarters. My guest today is Matt Doyle. He's been an analyst, writer, and realtor for uh, and talking head for the Major League Soccer, Soccer.com <laughs> since 2010. Matt, thanks for joining me. I want to get to the the heart of the matter and, and just ask you this right, right off the bat. Um, who's the most consistently wrong person on Extra Time Radio? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I think we're all... Um, I think most people are all over the place. I, I guess I'm probably gonna have to go with Weeby. I think Weeby is pretty consistently wrong. Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I was going to go Ben Bear. I know he's not uh, an official, uh, you know, he's, mm. he's not in the full lineup, but, um, but he, you know, he, he's got a great wrong per 90 rate. It's a, <laughs> it's, a it's pretty, pretty remarkable. I appreciate I, honestly, I appreciate that this whole thing started with with you dunking on Oso. So that's, yeah. that's a good, uh, yeah, a good I'm, beginning. Uh, you know, I've never met him, but uh, someday I, I will I will dunk on him in, in person. And until then, I'll just uh, <laughs> I'll do it vicariously via podcast. He won't hear this anyway. So, um, you know, I I've heard you talk about how you got kind of a. I'm going to start not soccer. How you got kind of a, a, a late start and took a long time to graduate college. I'm kind of curious about mm -hmm. that that period for you. Was it um, just kind of taking a long time to figure out what you want to do? Is it just a lot of uh, weed, or what? Tell me about that. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't weed, uh, but it was. Well, it was a little bit, but it was everything else under the sun. Um, I was just a, I was a bad student. Um, I, I probably had or have ADHD, and it. it uh, it, it made me struggle in my classes. And like, I, you know, I didn't get a late start on college. I went straight from high school to college. And, um, I, once I got to college, I stayed there for six years. 
I somehow left after six years, one, one class short. Um, and I didn't actually finish that class, get that class done until almost 10 years later where UConn called me out of the blue and they were like, can you, can you please just take this class? Can you please just do this? Because our numbers matter because we have state funding that we worry about. Um, and it was a class, believe it or not, in my major. Um, and their policy was you, you have to take that. If you're in, in your major, you have to take that on campus. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I live in New York. I'm not going to go to stores. And they're like, well, you could do the reverse commute and you could go to, to Stanford, Connecticut, which is, you know, 50 minutes from Grand Central. And I said, yeah, I'm actually not going to do that either. And eventually they just caved and let me take it out of college here. Uh, in New York. And I, so I got, I officially graduated, um, with a completely useless BA in English, um, when I was 30 years old. So, I mean, as someone who has taught English, let's, let's not say it's completely useless, just, just mostly, (laughs) mostly frivolous. I mean, lots of, you get to read lots of Jane Austen and and things like that. Um, what, was that, um, yeah, what, was it largely just kind of uh, um, when you decided to kind of move to New York and, and kind of move along with your life rather than uh, kind of f- then kind of immediately finishing? What, what were you, what were the plans then? What, what, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> I, I had been a sports writer from the time I was 14. I, I started working as a stringer for the local, uh, for the local paper in, in Torrington, Connecticut. And, uh, my dad or my mom would, you know, I would get assigned to cover the girl soccer game from, you know, two towns over. And my dad would, would drive me to the game and I would, you know, do the sports writing thing as a 14 year old. And, um, you know, so I did that through high school, and then I got to college. And as bad a student as I was, I was great for the for the student paper. Um, and this was the late '90s, so there were a million .dot nets and .dot coms popping up that paid really, really well. Um, like I, I probably made more money when I was in college in the late '90s than I did upon moving to New York in, in the early aughts and working a real job. Um, so I like, by the time I left UConn, I had been a sports writer in one form or another for 10 years. And I was also involved in theater and I knew I was going to move to either New York or Boston. And the idea was let's make it New York because, um, you know, let's, let's give it a a good shot at at writing a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of plays and a couple of screenplays and see if I could break into that, uh, into that world because it, it seemed uh, much more glamorous and frankly is much more glamorous than, than sports writing. And I did that for a while and I, uh, it turned out to, turned out to be very difficult to break into that world, even when uh, you have pretty good contacts. And uh, after drifting for a while, that's, I ended up back doing the thing that I had started doing uh, when I was a young, young kid. So. When you, um, I have so many questions. I, I'm imagining this um, 14-year-old Matt Doyle with like a, just a shitty fedora. Um, did you have like a, a fedora that, like a kid fedora that you would wear or like your grandpa's? Uh, I, I did not, oh. but you know, in retrospect, that would have been a good way to build the brand from, uh, you know, right from the start. Uh, but no, I, I I did not wear a fedora to to cover most of those games back in the early nineties. Matt Doyle, kid analyst, um, and so uh, I'm also curious about the the screenwriting. Have you have you done much of that uh, since you kind of uh, you know backburnered it uh, for for sports writing? Have you do you continue to do that? No, no, I you know I, I think about that. I, I have a couple of friends who are in Hollywood who are you know, in, in really good places. And if I ever sat down and, um, and actually wrote a a screenplay I was proud of, I could definitely get it read. Um, but I, you know, I've written, I think three screenplays now and I'm proud of zero of them. And, (laughs) 
Um, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I'm not desperate enough to, um, to go in that direction at, at this point. So it's definitely something I, I still think about, um, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way the, the whole sports writing thing has turned out. So what genre, uh, do, do you like to write in? Um, I don't like to write anything <laughs> um, but I'm most interested in in uh, in, in sci-fi um, and I and I've tried my hand at that and it's probably my worst screenplay is sci-fi um, but I'm, I'm imagining you know, so when I asked that question in my head was Blade Runner knockoffs tell me I'm I'm at least yeah, on the right yep. track yes oh you're 100% correct oh my god you're 100% correct I feel yeah. like I know you so well right now <laughs> Uh, uh, and I don't even know why that is. I don't know, but for th- that's uh, I, either I'm uh, uh, just have uh, my. Well, I, I will say it's, it's like the, the the me that you get on Twitter is the pretty unvarnished me. So yeah. I think that if you followed my my Twitter feed, you probably know me decently. But. Yeah, I don't. I don't follow you on Twitter. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> you you kind of. Um, made comments also in the, in the past about how you kind of invented your job. And I'm wondering, did you just um, mm-hmm. like cold email Greg Lawless and tell him to, that you were an analytical expert and that he should hire you? <laughs> no, I, I had, um, I had a bunch of clips. I had been freelancing the second half of the off. I, I got back into sports writing and freelanced a bit. And so I had a bunch of clips. And then when MLS net became MLSsoccer.com, uh, Sean Francis, my good, my good buddy from, uh, you know, getting drunk in dying stadium parking lot over the, the course of the off. He was one of the very first tires. Um, and I said, Sean, here are my clips, put these in front of Greg Lawless every single day until he hires me. And Sean, God bless him, did that. Um, so it was like, it was a concerted effort on my part and on Sean's part. Uh, to get Greg to open up that binder and take a look and uh, you know and see see what I could offer and, and thank goodness um, you know when I had the interview I, I aced it and uh, you know ten years later here we are. You you um you kind of uh, have referred to it as, as sports writing and I'm wondering how mu- how much of it was soccer um, and what what did you what what was the breadth of, of your writing? Uh, it was all. It was all sports writing um, in the arts. I just didn't feel like I had enough of a. This was the like the the beginning of the blog era yeah. um, in a lot of ways, and I I probably read five times as much political coverage and um, you know newsy but mixed with opinion type stuff than I read of any sports stuff, but. Um, I just never felt as comfortable in that arena. Just didn't feel like I had the same level of expertise. Um, so I, I, I did some of that, but, uh, but no, it was probably 98% of what I wrote was, was sports, specifically soccer. Um, and I wasn't great at freelancing. I don't like pitching. Um, I don't like cold calling. I don't like doing any of that sort of stuff. So it was a, Losing battle, I was fighting until uh, until MLS soccer came along. And when when did uh, soccer um, come into your life? I guess I, it, actually the way I wrote that question, it, it feels like when did when did you <laughs> accept Jesus in your? <laughs> but uh, how did how did you get, like get into soccer, and how did that become a big part of your life? Uh, it was really the ninety World Cup. I, I was you know I had been vaguely aware of the 86 world cup. I was nine years old. Um, and then somehow Valderrama and the 87 Copa America got onto my radar as a 10 year old. So I, I knew a little bit and I liked it somewhat. Um, but then the 90 world cup with the U S being a part of it, um, that kind of turbocharged it for me. Uh, and at the same time, then there was, or just after that, there was, you know, 94 and the build up to that. Um, so I got the bug at that age. And then at the same time I was, you know, I was working for a small town paper. The, the, the 
sports writers of the small town paper, they don't want to cover the soccer teams. They want to cover the football, the basketball, and the baseball teams. So I got thrown into covering high school soccer when I was four, when I was in high school. Um, and then all those things sort of coalesced and I, uh, I fell in love based upon that exposure to the game and, and obviously stuck with it ever since. And when you were, you know, when, when you were, um, do, trying to be like, all right, I'm going to do this as a career, this whole sports writing thing, was it, um, there weren't, I mean, no one still, hardly anyone still, uh, makes money, uh, actually as a, as a soccer writer. So was it just trying to mm-hmm. find, uh, a- any gig writing about baseball or, or, uh, or, or, or whatever sport. And then, uh, you know, maybe I can do this soccer stuff on the side or, or did you have it in mind that you could actually make a career out of soccer? I didn't have anything in mind. I, I honestly, I didn't know. And I'm really bad at planning. Um, and I'm really bad at powering through and doing things that I don't like. <laughs> so I didn't, I, like I was never, I, w- I was never going to be able to say, okay, if I just, put in my four years covering, you know, the Newark bears or whatever minor league baseball team, then I'll be able to, uh, you know, do like the Stephen Goff thing where, where he has made DC United into a full-time beat, but he always had to do a million different other things. Like I was never, I was never going to be able to do that. Um, so I, like I drifted, I didn't have a plan. I didn't, I don't know what I would like, I've said a million times like, I would be flipping burgers for $8 an hour in Albuquerque if MLS soccer hadn't come along. <laughs> so I, didn't, I don't think I have the ability to do uh, the other, like the normal thing that, um, you know, good workers and, uh, you know, mature people can do. I, I just, I just was never able to. I, I mean, like, I got fired. I got fired from every job. I ever had before I got this job and I didn't get this job as a young man. I was in my thirties. <laughs> so what, what was the, the most memorable firing? Oh my God. I worked for a company. Um, you, you know, those who's who companies. Oh yeah. Like who's who. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I worked in the office, um, for that company and they thought these two, Oh, God, the, the, the two brothers who, who ran this joint, they thought they were in the movie Boiler Room. Um, <laughs> and it was like, and I, I said, like, uh, they, they would call and, and, like, the whole thing was just scamming people and not, like, super rich people. They were calling, like, nurses and, you know, educators. And uh, it, was, it was gross. It was the grossest place I've ever been. And I, I, basically told them that after three weeks of working there, you know, this is not, this is not worth the money you're paying me to, to be an office assistant. And, uh, it was a, you know, it was a heated and, uh, awful exchange with truly awful people. And if you ever get a call from one of those who's who's companies, just hang up the phone because it's a scam that means absolutely nothing. They're just trying to get your money. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, you know, my first job out of, out of college was working for this magazine that um, it was a really cool, hip, um, as far as it can go, um, law, local law and politics magazine. Um, but the the money maker that they had discovered is this um, super lawyers. Um, they had this um, uh, like list um, of all the super lawyers, and it was just like who you know they had um, decent criteria, but then there was also like voting. For, for these certain lawyers would nominate some people, and then it's just like well, of course, like all these lawyers want to have these little plaques, and then they want to buy ads, and so they started um, started doing these magazines all over the country. And then what, you know, when I was there, I was there to help develop super realtors and super dentists. Cause it was just like, well, fuck it, let's get their money too. And <laughs> you know, there's like no criteria that you can, you can look at like, all right, this, this uh, lawyer has had these big cases where you know, blah, blah, blah. You, you can, you can kind of evaluate someone who is a, a top lawyer, but realtors, it's just like, they're all just, 
I mean, they're all just carpetbaggers and yeah. Anyway. So, uh, so I just like created this, this shit and I would be like, all right, I think this is it. You know, I'm, I'm creating the Texas super realtors magazine and I'm a 22 year old dipshit who, uh, anyway, so I, I, I feel you there. Um, uh, <laughs> So <laughs> I don't even know what the were question. you a Mar- were you a, were you a Marxist before that or after that? Like, uh, did that after. radicalize you further? No, no. I you know I didn't get radicalized until late. Like I didn't read Marx until um, graduate school. I, I I didn't read him in undergrad or anything. And then graduate school, someone uh, handed it to me, and I was I, I it was like the light bulb went on. I was a like, this mm-hmm. this kind of way of perceiving reality and who I am. It, it was amazing. So yeah, it, it, I'm a, I was a, a late comer to, uh, to this, uh, you know, I, but I did grow up like evangelical, uh, conservative. And so it's been a, a long, slow oh, a journey. Ro- yeah. A long, slow road to, uh, radicalism. So, um, <laughs> how did you get radicalized? Uh, I was always pretty far left and I, I just, I think that, um, you know, the 2000 election ended up doing a, a real good job on me, um, pushing it further. And then, you know, I remember after the, the verdict came in from the Supreme Court, um, I, I sat down and I wrote out what I expected from the next, um, from the next four years. And that, you know, included a war in the Middle East and tax cuts for the, the uber rich and, um, you know, pushback on civil rights and civil liberties, particularly for women. Um, and like it all came, it yeah. all came to pass. And I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> you know, this is, this is problematic. And it, it's gotten to the point where it, it's just like, I try not to have, political conversations with my family who, who are, you know, very different in their, their views on some of this stuff. But I just, when I have to, I just make the point like, okay, however we get there, fine. I just want to live in a society where nobody starves. Um, nobody dies or goes broke from health, you know, for health issues and everybody has a place to live. If you take care of those three things, and I think we have enough wealth in the country uh, and probably in the world to take care of those three things, then okay, we can play with the other stuff. But I like hit my baseline <laughs> right here, and and we'll have a real conversation. Um, and that pe- most people don't find that off-putting. Most people are like, oh yeah, it's actually a good idea. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird time to be alive. Yeah, that's that does sound radical. Um- <laughs> Um, you know, let me, let me just uh, take this back to, to your kind of, uh, soccer writing. Um, where, you know, where does your kind of, or how have you developed your analytical part of, you know, not just the, um, cause yeah, you, you for a long time now have not been one of the kind of, uh, Here's five things that uh, five people that um, Montreal should sign, but more more of the analysis. And I'm wondering how you have de- developed that. Yeah, I, in the '90s um, when I was in college, uh, I, I covered the UConn men's and women's soccer teams, and I, I got I was really lucky in that um, in, in that in that press box, there were a lot of good writers. There's not, there's nothing else to cover in Connecticut besides UConn. Um, there were a lot of good writers from, uh, you know, local and sometimes national papers. Like Paul Gardner was often there in that press box. Hmm. Um, and then Jerry Trekker was the big one. Uh, Jerry Trekker covered, you know, he's retired since then, but he was, you know, one of the original, American soccer writers and he uh, you know I sat next to him for probably 50 games and picked his brain and read everything he wrote and got to understand the way he saw the game so that was one big part Um, and then the other well another big part was sort of the negative reinforcement of realizing like Rick Riley is kind of a punchline now but if you look back at the stuff he wrote for Sports Illustrated in the 80s and 90s, 
he was incredible. And I wanted to be Rick Riley, and I, I couldn't. I, I just wasn't that type of writer. Um, I don't think if I had banged my head against the wall for a thousand years, I don't think I would ever have been that type of writer. Um, so realizing I couldn't go through that door. And then the third aspect was I got into to, uh, cultural criticism. And by culture, I mean really film and mm-hmm. television. Um, Pauline Kale, Roger Ebert, uh, Alan Seppenwall, when he sort of came onto the scene. And that, like, I was just getting into that when I met my wife, who has a cinema studies master's degree from NYU. And that's sort of the frame that, that she views everything through. And I realized, like, nobody was really applying this to soccer. Certainly not to American soccer. Certainly not in that style. And um, and I, I don't know. I just had a hunch that there was a that there was an opening for that. And that from from the very beginning, I won't say from the very beginning, but like from the point in in the early to mid aughts where I realized I was going to have to get back into sports writing again. That was always the direction that I took it. And then you know when MLSsoccer.com hired me, that kind of became turbocharged. Um, That like there is an opening for this kind of writing um, in, in our sport and particularly in our league. Um, And it had the added bonus of not having to network, um, not having to call coaches or GMs or players and get their quotes. Because I honestly think 95% of the time, um, those quotes are, and perspectives are, are kind of bullshit. Oh yeah, um, I mean you so could all you could yeah. write you basically before you call, give them the call, you could write down exactly what they're going to say, uh, write the article, and then just call and make sure that they said that. Just just say these words because I know this is what you're going to say anyway. Yep. Um, <laughs> yep. So it was it was a it was like a, a very right place, right time uh, sort of confluence for me to to actually create this type of um, column with this type of perspective. And it feels like over the years you've, you've gotten, um, uh, I don't know if it's more sophisticated about it. It, it feels like your um, uh, knowledge of the game has obviously increased because you're watching it all the time. But I'm also wondering how, like, how do you um, continue that, that education to, to be able to understand what the game better than uh, better than you in the past or better than other people? That's a good question. I, you know, working with and around talented people really helps. Um, you know, I don't think it's a, I think, I don't think it's a coincidence that the past couple of years I've written, I think some of my most insightful stuff about the game. And that happens to be, you know, when I've been working with Bobby Warshaw, um, and, you know, Bobby is sometimes or often wrong, um, just as we all are, but he uh, he thinks about things differently. And, and having that as a resource, as a writer and as a viewer of the game has helped a ton. And then the other thing is, like, there are, in the past 10 years, there's been a proliferation of folks um writing from a similar angle or a similar perspective or with a similar mandate to me. And I, I read most of their stuff and that influences me. And there are a lot of smart people out there doing a lot of good writing. Um, and I absolutely incorporate that into, um, my view of the game. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a great time to try to learn more about soccer about how, you know, the, the moving pieces and the, uh, you know, how the game works. Um, and I think that that applies, like, I'm still learning, probably learning more now than I was 20 years ago. Um, and I think that it can definitely apply to someone who's just starting out as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to, to what you were saying about taking the the cinema angles or, or cultural criticism and it, it it's often very easy for me to tell um, a writer who um, went to who wanted to become a sports journalist from kind of anyone else who who found their way there or are doing it, um, but came 
uh, be, because I, I think there's just a um, there's an angle to um, to how people talk when they've been more steeped in existing sports journalism, which you know, like most journalism, I guess, or, or any writing, you know, it's it's a majority just garbage, Ma- majority not even garbage, <laughs> just majority just kind of like, look, we've got to do this. We you know they gave a press conference, we've yeah. got to we've got to write it up. Um, or even like features about profiles about people that, that just feel, um, uh, you, I can definitely tell, especially, you know, I'd look at, um, Howler Magazine's work. You, you could tell the different kind of writers who George had brought in, who, um, were from a different perspective and they just wrote about the game more interestingly, you know, wrote about people more interestingly, um, cause they weren't, uh, you know, there's, there's something about, uh, no offense to, uh, our, our, friends who are sports journalists, but, uh, there's something no, to but, but the, the, I, I think the, the point is that sports is culture, right? Yeah, and we yeah. should, we should treat it like that. And we should treat it the, the way that, you know, it's, it's Kaya de cinema. We, we should, we should, we should do that. And the thing to remember is that people didn't do that for film until Kaya de cinema. People didn't really do that for TV until folks like Stephen Law. So like, there's no reason to, to think differently about our thing than folks do about other parts of the zeitgeist. Yeah. How often are GMs and coaches texting you to complain about what you've said? Uh, not as often as you would think. Okay. I, I do. Is it just Weeby? They all, they all just go after Weeby. Uh, well, I think they do go after Weeby and they, they do go after everybody to an extent, but um, you know, I, I, I have said to, to many of them, if you have a problem with something I've written, if you think I'm wrong my you know, you have my number, you have my email, you can drop into my DMS on Twitter. Um, and, and from time to time that has happened, but you know, more often, uh, I think that that goes through lawless. Um, I, I think that he hears it, uh, about my columns more than I hear it about my column. And, uh, and he's, he's so far, he's okay with that. Um, but I do like, I do wish more of them, if they had a problem with something I said, um, I do wish more of them were willing to, to pick up the phone and talk to me to direct, uh, directly, but there's not a lot of them who do. Yeah. Um, how do you balance the, desire to tell the truth um, and, and the kind of the annoying fact that you do work for the league and you, you've got, you know, there, there are kind of editorial uh, constraints there. Um, how do you kind of uh, find your own niche to, to do that? Or maybe, maybe you don't find the constraints hit you that much. Um, I think that it's actually helped me. I think that if I hadn't had those constraints from the start, I would be a, a, I think a much nastier, yeah. snarkier, um, shittier writer like me. Um, but, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you, <laughs> I would be you. Um, and I, I think I found a way to, to, um, to make my opinions known mm-hmm. without being degrading, without being, um, unnecessarily shitty, uh, and I, I'm actually, you know, mostly happy about that. Now there are times where, um, I wish I could be a little harder on things. And there are certainly things that I can't cover that, um, I would like to, to be able to have an opinion about, but in terms of the, the trade off, um, it's been absolutely 100% worth it for me, uh, to, to have these constraints because I actually do think we've done a really good and mostly very fair job of covering the league and the the respective national teams, the U S and Canadian national teams over the past 10 years um, in terms of what's happening on the field. I, I, I'm actually very proud of, of the work that we've done. Yeah. Um, I'm proud of you too. So for, for the record, thank you. Um, (laughs) you. um, uh, One thing that kind of, 
like amazes me is that you and the others with, with the website, just how much soccer you have to watch. Um, you know, there's there's sometimes like 14 games going on in a weekend, and it seems uh, it seems like you bunker up and watch most of them uh, at least, or, or at least watch enough so that. Um, uh, it, it's rare I hear any of you go like, "Oh yeah, I just I just didn't watch that." Um, maybe you just don't say anything at all. But um, do you ever get like oversaturated and think like, "God, wouldn't it be nice to just go hiking hiking this weekend and not watch soccer?" Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, all, all the time. I don't want to say all the time. I <laughs> probably five weekends a year. I'm like, I just don't. I I just don't want this. Yeah. I. It would be. It would be great to be at a beach. Um, and, and it gets really like, it, it gets oppressive, I would say by, by August. And yeah. usually every year I, I'm able to take a vacation in August yeah. and just get away for seven or eight days. Um, though I found that when I do that, believe it or not, I take the computer with me and I end up watching the games, you know, via our, our in-house technology. Um, while I'm sitting at the pool in, in Cabo, I'm sitting there watching the, the freaking games. Um, that sounds sad, man. It's, yeah, it's a tough life. Um, I like I, I, I don't know. How do I put this? Like every job at some point becomes a job. Yeah. And that's true of this job as well. Um, but it's also a dream job. And I try to always remember that. And um, it ends up being, even on those weekends where you're like, I wish I was at my nephew's birthday. You know, like it, it still ends up being very easy to say, but I can't because I have this dream job to do. And I'm going to go down and I'm going to watch eight hours of soccer instead. Yeah. Um, Your nephew's like, going to have another being, birthday anyway. Yeah. Hopefully not going to wood. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did that just get too morbid? Was that dark? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a, on brand though. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, the kid should get used to disappointment. So, um, how then has your relationship to soccer changed over the years? Like, do you, do you, do you, um, I you never really came at it from like a super fan, um, you know, where, where now you see this thing that you used to, used to love, uh, become a job and now you hate it or something or resent it. But, um, I guess, do you, do you find yourself, um, uh, watching soccer in the same way, uh, or, or able to enjoy it in the same way? Uh, not really. Um, you know, 15 years ago, I could just turn on a game and, and just, you know, let my mind be blank and, and, in, enjoy the aesthetics of it and the beauty of the sport and, um, you know, the, the brilliance of individual players and, and, and all that. And, um, that, that has changed. It's tough to, to turn off the, um, I'm doing this for my job. I have to figure out why the moving pieces are yeah. moving the, the way they are. Plus there's the competitive aspect. Um, you know, if, okay, like I'm, I'm watching, you know, Wolves play yesterday. Like, I have to figure out, like, if I don't have, if I'm not well-versed in this, somebody else in my field is going to be, and that person's going to take my job. Um, and I don't I don't want that person to take my job, at least not yet. <laughs> I'm not sick of it yet. Um, so there's, like, that fear um, always is a very good driver of keeping me uh, in terms of keeping me engaged in the sport. Uh, even when I don't necessarily have to be. Yeah. Um, uh, done with the, or I guess I want to ask this about uh, soccer. What, what is like the one uh, MLS thing that drives you crazy that like I if you know commissioner for a day type thing, this this is immediately what I'm going to dictate changes. And why is it pro rel? For it, <laughs> Man, it's, not that. it's not that. Um, the, the, what LASC did last year, and believe it or not, what what San Jose did last year, 
uh, even though they ended up missing the playoffs, in terms of every single week going out and playing like their hair was on freaking fire and doing like this, the intensity ramped up to 11 every single game. Um, I appreciate that so much because we have all sat through games in almost any sport where it's like, oh, till Wednesday is cross-conference game. Eh, point's fine. Um, and it just makes for so much, it's such a worse viewing experience. Whereas if you look at how LAFC and, um, and San Jose played, like even the games that they were crappy, even the games that they lost last year, they were extraordinary viewing experiences because of the intensity. And we have to figure out how to do a better job of bringing that to the regular season, um, at least to like 80% of what those two teams were doing in 2019. Um, because regular season is eight months long or seven months long. Um, and it's like, I've been a fan. I have, I have sat through crappy games. I thought, I mean, I sat through the 2004 season, which is easily the worst season in MLS history. Um, and I watched a terrible Metro Stars team. Like they were, ended up being like 11, 10, and 11. And that was second place in the Eastern Conference or something like that. It was awful. Um, and that was a whole league that year. And there's still remnants of that, and we have to stamp it out. We have to make the regular season freaking awesome. Um, and is that a coaching thing? You know, you San Jose and, and LAFC are obviously the the key factors. There are um, Bradley and Almeida. Um, is, is it a quality of coaching thing, or is it like uh, just maybe we can structure the the season where we can make X matter more or, or something like that? I think it's both. And I think that they took a big step in that direction by going to the single elimination playoffs because it does make the regular season matter more. Yeah. Um, but there's still, you know, it's a remnant of the arena Kinnear era uh, where it's like, with, you know, just, just be fine in the regular season and then try to turn it on in August. If you turn it on in August, you'll make the playoffs. And then if you make the playoffs, you got a shot. Um, I'm hoping now with, with teams spending more and frankly being much better than they were mm-hmm. five years ago in this league, that the gap between the truly great teams and the not so great teams, um, becomes wider so that you can't just turn it on in the playoffs. You actually need to get every advantage possible, which means home field advantage, which means adding pieces throughout the year, which means developing young players, which means having different tactical approaches you can throw at teams. Um, and if that happens, then it becomes a much more interesting league to follow, uh, not just in October and November, but from February onwards. Yeah. Um, all right. Done with the, the soccer questions. Uh, I, I want to, um, ask you about the, the revolutions podcast. Um, since you were the one who turned me on to this, I'm now currently in the middle of uh, the Haitian revolution, uh, favorite, uh, all time, uh, uh, revolution in history. Uh, it's, it's cliche, but the, the French revolution, um, you know, ending feudalism, overturning basically 2000 years of, of how people had lived and how they had, um, mostly not risen, uh, in the way that they did and laying the groundwork for modernism. Um, yeah. And especially, you know, Danton, um, his, his sort of vision for what a revolution is and what a society could be. That's, that's still my number one. In, in terms of uh, just like a regular hobbies or, or obsessions, um, uh, is, do you find yourself doing a lot of history reading or, or is it, uh, well, I guess, what, what is your, your kind of uh, interest there? My only, my only real interest other than, other than soccer um, are, it's, it's, you know, like 
getting a better understanding of world history um, and then futurism. That's and that's kind of like the sci-fi overlap, like understanding where humanity is going as a species um, is is a big one. I thought so I thought you were talking about like the Italian futurists, and I was like, that's a really that's a really interesting niche <laughs> interest. Yeah. Fascist art and world history, yeah, in yeah. soccer. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, not not that type of futurist. And actually, right now, I'm I'm listening to a book um, because who wants to read um, uh, called "How How to Hide an Empire: uh, A Story of the Greater United States" hmm. that has been absolutely spectacular and enlightening, and it goes into um, basically how we changed as a society kind of starting with the Mexican-American War hmm. um, but especially when we started really collecting overseas territories uh, in the in the 1850s and then in you know the, the Spanish-American War was obviously a huge turning point uh, that led to us having essentially an overseas empire highly recommended all right I'm, I'm currently reading uh, David Graeber do you, do you know him at all um, I don't. I don't actually. Uh, he's, he's got a book on bureaucracy. I'm blanking on. It's like the Utopia of Rules or, or something like that. Um, but he's a he's an anthropologist at London School of Economics, and he, he's talking about the way in which um, uh, it's kind of a leftist cr- critique of bureaucracy because we always see bureau- bureaucrat- mm-hmm. bureaucracy as part of the leftist state. But um, but the the looking at America's uh, politics or America the way like private and public entities have come together to create these huge bureaucratic states of triplicates to get insurance and things like that. I highly recommend that when you, when you're done, I don't know if there's an audio book, you might have to use your eyeballs, but you know, uh, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you then also about, uh, um, uh, cocktails. I know you're a, a brown mm-hmm. liquor, uh, aficionado. Are you a, is, is, are you a neat, cocktail or neat liquor drinker or do you make cocktails? Uh, my wife makes cocktails. Okay. So I will often drink. Yeah. She, she has a, a bartending degree. So she, uh, she has uh, cocktails have been one of her great hobbies for the past, uh, 25 years. And, um, I am happy to, uh, be the test subject for a lot of them. I, I you know, I, I do like, I do like some cocktails, um, quite a bit. Like I, I will have a, a mezcal paloma any day of the week, um, but I, in general, I, I like an Isla Scotch uh, with one ice cube. Okay, fair enough. There, um, yeah. Well, then you and the the missus need to come out to the bar sometime. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> nearby. It's in your neighborhood. Um, you know, I, uh, that's kind of what what I have for you. I'm, I'm kind of uh, glad that we got to kind of talk about your career arc and stuff like that um and i've also just been meaning to ask you about the revolutions pod and, and thank you for uh putting that uh in my brain because i have a lot of like uh mopping and cleaning bathrooms and moving kegs around where uh I, I i need i need to you know hear about people's heads getting cut off that makes it much easier to do <laughs> uh, how far into the, the russian revolution are you so i i actually started that and then stopped uh so that i could just because i want to be able to like binge it because i need to control it a bit Mm -hmm. better um so that i can keep it all in my head so that's why i stopped it Uh, i'm gonna go back and and uh after the haitian revolution uh then start the russian revolution from the beginning because i i i I wanted to go back and and start with the french because i think i asked a few people and i think you said like start with the french one so that's where I, i went first yeah i i i actually i got i think five or six episodes into the Russian revolution. And I realized that my background on all of this is not solid enough for me to really appreciate what he's going at. So I went and I re-listened to everything. As a matter of fact, I just finished the Paris commune stuff. Yeah. Um, and now I'm doing like further reading and listening to try to expand my understanding of Russia in the, in the 1900s and or 1800s rather. And then, the lead up to world war one, um, and, and all the sort of global influences as well as obviously class and local influences. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's spectacular. It's I, you know, fantastic I, podcast. I, I, um, 
uh, I definitely got to the episode where he's, he's talking a lot about Bakunin and realized that I just, I knew nothing about anarchism. Um, to me, yeah. anarchy, I had just this stupid idea of it that like I got probably in high school and then never uh, bothered to think about uh, developing that, that thought. And start, so then I like stopped listening and just went and just read up about Bakunin and anarchism and realized like, oh man, I might be an anarchist and started looking at, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I read, you know, something that was like, oh yeah, it was talking about the, um, I th- I think it's the uh, Kurdish anarchist state uh, that's kind of semi-autonomous in northern Syria. Um, and, uh, or is it, I think it's northern Syria. Anyway, and just reading about uh, um, uh, anarchist, like, autonomous sections of the world and cities. And um, and just was like, man, if I didn't have two kids in this bar I just bought, I, uh, I, I might just go live in a... <laughs> anarchist <laughs> town but uh you know i think i, I raise, raise the black flag yeah if only like someone had like why why no one like just handed me bakunin and marks as a like 18 year old i would definitely be in some you know you're talking about your sliding doors <laughs> moment of being like well i'm either a uh i either work at major league soccer soccer.com or i'm basically just a a, a bit character in breaking bad uh mine is definitely i i I'm either a, a, a bar owner or like some raging militant uh, um, fighting uh, in, in northern Syria. So there we go. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll work on it once the kids once the kids go to go to college. Once they get out of the house, I'll be this just raging militant uh, empty nester. Like, uh, Dad, are you coming home for? Where we got Christmas break? Are you going to come home? Sorry, kids, I've got. Got some fascists to crush uh, over here in uh, in uh, Turkey. So, uh, <laughs> all right, thanks, Matt. It's it's been great chatting with you. Uh, I, I uh, you know, obviously, listeners, you know him better than me, so I don't need to say where he is on Twitter or anything like that. Um, but I, I really appreciate it, Matt, and thanks for uh, um, making uh, making time for me and, and making uh, Twitter more entertaining. You got it, buddy. Be good. Yeah, thanks.